Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hi, I'm Matt Shoup. Welcome to today's program at the Commonwealth Club. I'm the founder and principal owner of the Praetorian Public Relations, a political consulting company, and I'm also the chairman of the Contra Costa Republican Party, so I'm here, Bay Area native here. And with us today, we have Michelle Malkin, who is the author and conservative commentator and founder of conservative websites Twitchy and Hot Air. Ms. Malkin is known for her sharp humor and unapologetic expression, as well as her widely read conservative blog, michellemalkin.com. Ms. Malkin is the author of four best-selling books, has been a regular contributor on Fox News since 2001, has over 2 million followers on Twitter, and her new book, Open Borders, Inc., which I all highly recommend, uh, asks readers to re-examine America's history of immigration up to our current state of crisis, arguing that special interest groups have been working to keep borders open, labor cheap, and voters democratic. Uh, We're pleased to have her with us tonight to discuss immigration, social issues, and identity politics. Please welcome Michelle Malkin. Thank you. So let, let, let's jump into this, actually. So today in the news, and the Washington Post reported that ICE is releasing between 75 and 100 illegal alien criminals into the streets of Los Angeles. Who's benefiting from that? How and why? So Open Borders, Inc. identifies hundreds of organizations, many of them tax-exempt nonprofit groups that operate ostensibly as charities, but essentially act as either satellite groups for uh, political interests that are sabotaging our borders and our sovereignty. Um, Many of them, you mentioned the phrase identity politics, um, are dedicated to um, fomenting identity politics. And one of the ways that they are doing that is erasing the fundamental difference between legal and illegal aliens. And many of those groups are subsidized by um, both left-wing philanthropists, George Soros being the most notorious of them, um, but also big business and uh, open borders libertarians groups. And I identify the Koch brothers, um, Koch brother now, and the Koch Institute on the other side of the spectrum. And those groups uh, essentially ally on an agenda that has produced, um, I think, one of the most dangerous movements of the modern political era, and that is the Abolish ICE movement. Uh, It is dedicated to destroying one of the fundamental functions of the federal government, which is the enforcement of immigration laws on the interior of the country. And I warn that uh, the the focal point of the border wall on our southern border, uh, of course, is, is important. But without an effective means of enforcing the law on the interior, um, it's rendered us defenseless. And that's why you see these stories of local uh, police departments essentially being forced to uh, release these criminal aliens into the population. And California is a textbook example of a sanctuary state. Um, And it's not a sanctuary that protects law-abiding people. It's a sanctuary that harbors, aids, and abets people who pose a threat to our public safety and national security. So as a political consultant and the chairman of a Bay Area Republican Party, my challenge is to get Republicans elected in the most probably one of the most liberal parts of the country. Immigration is one of the most hot topic issues there is to talk about both on the state and federal level. How do you recommend that Republicans navigate this issue, talk about this issue in the Bay Area throughout California to actually win on that issue and win elections? Well, I would think that no matter what part of the political spectrum you lie on, that there should be universal agreement that people who are committing crimes and whose first crime uh, was the original crime of trespassing our borders illegally or overstaying a visa illegally 
and then compounding that with so-called civil violations, um, which are not harmless and victimless crimes, for example, identity theft, uh, and then uh, being employed illegally. And of course, both sides of that uh, issue should be punished. Employers who break laws against hiring um, people illegally should be criminally prosecuted, as well as the people who are here working illegally. And then on top of that, compounding it with serious crimes, um, whether it's serial drunk driving or rape or murder, shouldn't be on our streets and should be deported in an effective manner. And that's what's happening with the radical open borders left. And when you bend the arc, the radical open borders right as well, is when you rob the federal government of the ability to enforce our laws on the interior. And then you have local and state authorities that are barring and criminalizing cooperation and communication with federal ICE issues. Uh, You have basically cooked up a recipe for immigration anarchy. And, you know, so when a political consultant asks me, well, how do we communicate this in a way that will... Um, resonate with, you know, non-conservative or non-Republicans. And I I guess I would just say simply, so liberals support criminal alien rapists and murderers walking around freely in the the country? And, and, And that's the way it has to be framed. So here's another narrative that's always plied by many of the entities that I identify in Open Borders, Inc., and then that is echoed by Open Borders sympathizers in the so-called mainstream media. And that is to bemoan the plight of the separation of families at the border, families that have broken our immigration laws, um, that are enriching coyotes and enriching drug cartels, and then ignoring the plight of American families and law-abiding legal immigrants, for that matter, and, unfortunately, other people in the migrant communities across this country who are also here illegally, the separation that occurs on a daily basis, in many cases permanent separation, as a result of the bloody consequences of open borders. And obviously the, the cases of the Bologna family here in San Francisco, as well as the Kate Steinle family, um, broke into the, the national um, consciousness. But these stories are happening every single day. And I, I want to contrast how different types of families are treated. So I contrasted illegal alien families who can get on the cover of Time magazine uh, and be hailed in the mainstream media, Uh, and then angel families, uh, the families of Americans um, who lost their lives because of our lack of will of enforcing our laws. Um, But there are also privileged families in America who can enjoy the selective benefits of selective enforcement of our immigration laws. So I talk about Kendall Jenner. (laughs) Everybody knows who Kendall Jenner is, right? World. uh, One of the Kardashian family members. Well, earlier this year, there was a home invader that was able to uh, traipse into her walled Beverly Hills mansion. It is walled on three sides, but it faces a mountain, and the home invader was able to uh, get into the property through that way. But she had 24-hour security, armed guards, uh, the works. They were able to detect this invader, and he was arrested. He was sentenced to 180 days in jail earlier this year, uh, served half of that, and then was released. ICE was somehow given a tip that he made his way into New Mexico, and he was picked up by ICE in New Mexico. It turned out this home invader was a B-2 business uh, visa, short-term visa um, holder who had overstayed his visa. So ICE, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department and a tip from Uh, law enforcement in New Mexico, was able to apprehend him and selectively use enforcement of our immigration laws to prevent 
a possible future crime. Kendall Jenner and the Kardashian family pulled the strings because they didn't want this uh, potential threat uh, to cause any harm to Kendall Jenner. And so the Kardashian-Jenner family issued uh, this glowing press release in which they thanked law enforcement and ICE uh, for their um, savvy cooperation uh, that helped prevent a future crime. Well, that's how a cooperation between local, state, and federal authorities should work. Why does Kendall Jenner get to enjoy that, but not everyone else who's in the California sanctuary city, county, or state? You see, you see what happened there? They couldn't pick him up, this illegal alien visa overstayer, in California. So they tracked him. They waited for him to uh, cross the state border, picked him up in New Mexico, and then immediately took him to a detention facility in Texas, which I'm, I'm just going to segue here into another very topical news item. How many of you last week saw that CalPERS was divesting from two uh, private prison companies? Anybody see that? Yes. So the two private prison companies are Core Civic and Geo Group. Geo Group runs the Texas detention facility where this illegal alien home invader was sent um, pending deportation. Okay. What's going to happen to all of the illegal aliens that are here in detention facilities that are run by Geo Group and CoreCivic? Where are they going to go? The, the, the problem is that the, the border issue doesn't stop at the border, and it doesn't stop in California, because now you have these activist groups whose goal is to destroy the immigration enforcement function. And so I want to connect it to the themes of uh, Open Borders, Inc., because my investigative mantra for this book is follow the money, find the truth. So you open up the papers and you see that, that CalPERS has made this decision. Who made it? Who's behind it? Who's funding it? And it turns out that the two groups that lobbied lo loudest for CalPERS to divest from these immigration detention facilities, these privately run ones, um, and then previous to the CalPERS decision, it was the California um, the teacher's retirement system that had led the way last year. Well, there's a, an obscure group. It's called Badass Teachers. Do we have any members of it? Yeah. Uh, along with another group called Educators for Migrant Justice, which led this virtue signaling campaign, um, which is essentially uh, you know, just another wing of the anti-Trump resistance movement. So they started agitating last year. Now they've scored the success. And so I looked up to know more about these groups, and they traced their funding directly to George Soros and the Tides Foundation. What is their agenda? What are they really after here? It is throwing a massive monkey wrench into this basic duty of enforcing the law once people are able to trespass whether they come across the southern border, the northern border, or whether they come in legally through short-term visas and then overstay them. Ultimately, their goal is to stop that function as a way to undermine our very ability to uh, uphold American sovereignty. So comprehensive immigration reform or immigration reform has been a campaign talking point for decades. The groups you highlighted, is it a cause or is it an effect? Are they the ones that are delaying it, the reason it hasn't been really uh, dealt with? Or is it a effect of the fact that this has been dragged out for so long and now there's organizations that are capitalizing it and dragging out it even longer? So let's just stop right there with that phrase, which I hate, by the way. <laughs> It's a consultant phrase, <laughs> uh, right? Compre comprehensive immigration reform. What does that even mean? Well, let's go back to, well, we could go back to 1965, but let's go to 1986, because that's most relevant here, right? The Immigration Reform and Control Act. So what happened? The C part of that was just completely 
dropped and abandoned. And I think that, you know, Ronald Reagan made this mistake of trusting that when the legislation was passed, that both parts of the deal would actually be uh, fulfilled. And you all remember what it was. It was a one-time blanket amnesty for all of the people who were here illegally, however they came here illegally, because America at the time did not have the collective will to um, figure out some orderly way to send people back home to the back of the line uh, or in some manner to have consequences for breaking our immigration laws. I said, okay, this is just, it's just one time, one time, and then we'll also finally fully enforce employer sanctions. We'll have uh, physical barriers that are uh, going to be effective, and then we'll figure out a way to construct uh, an entry exit database, which most modern Western and industrialized nations around the world have, so that if people come in legally and then they overstay their visas, it'll actually matter. We'll be able to track them down and um, send them home. So we never got that part of the deal, right? So when people say comprehensive immigration reform, basically what they mean is another amnesty without control. And between 1986 and 2001, we had 13 subsequent amnesties of all flavors for every different special interest group from illegal alien um, nannies from Ireland, because that's what Teddy Kennedy wanted, um, various uh, temporary protected status uh, programs for uh, any number of um, foreigners from countries that had natural disasters or earthquakes. Temporary has never meant temporary. Temporary means permanent. I mean, we've had TPS status extended through both Democrat and Republican administrations for the last 25 years. There are people who were able to get TPS because of earthquakes that happened in El Salvador in, 19, in the 1980s who are still here. Uh, and then when 2001 rolled around, there was, an, there was a new awakening. Oh, look at that. The September 11th terrorist attacks were perpetrated by people who all came here legally, five of whom had overstayed their visas, many of whom had encountered law enforcement, but because local Maryland state troopers or Virginia police uh, were not able to uh, check some sort of um, coordinated database to see if they had immigration violations that could be used to uh, send them home as a preventative measure, the same kind of preventative prophylactic that Kendall Jenner got to enjoy, right? And a bipartisan commission said, oh, hey, maybe we should uh, get around to fully implementing that entry-exit system that we talked about for the last 20 years. Uh, maybe we should have secure ID. And the bipartisan commission came out with this report and we hit the snooze alarm. And so let's talk about today, where, it, again, it, here's, here are issues that both Democrats, Republicans, independents, all of them should agree on. If you overstay your visa, there should be consequences for that. Well, fast forward from 2001 to 2019, there are an estimated 700,000 visa overstayers from around the world. And here's the thing. You know, those of us who uh, believe in strict immigration enforcement are always, always accused of being racist against people from south of the border, right? Visa overstayers are from all over the world. You know, they're from Asia, they're from Europe, they're from Africa. And, uh, you know, I'm equal opportunity about that. They should all go. <laughs> <laughs> so... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a couple questions inspired from the audience. And I, I'll tell you that when I prepare my clients to deal with the media, I always tell them to avoid hypothetical scenarios as much as possible. So I'm going to give you two hypothetical scenarios. <laughs> One you kind of touched on, but so two scenarios. One, 2020, President Trump loses the election, the Democrats keep the House, and the Democrats win back the Senate. 
Democrat control across the board. What does immigration look like in 2021? First question. Second question. Michelle Malkin has made president of the United States. Your best friend is the... Your best friend is the uh, Speaker of the House, and the other one, your other best friend is the Majority Leader of the Senate. What does immigration look like under a Malkin administration? Okay, so let's take the first question, a hypothetical that, chillingly, we have to contemplate as a, a real possibility. Uh, so, I mean, in some ways, you have to think about what the current situation is, and it's a, a question that I have to ask myself every day. And it's a question that fueled um, my writing process as I was um, putting this book together for the last eight months. And for that matter, to step back, um, for every one of the three books that I've dedicated to immigration policy, and that is, what is this country? Are we a sanctuary nation or are we a sovereign nation? And what does it mean to be a sovereign nation? And um, th this may seem like I'm veering a bit, but it, but it does help answer, answer the question to ask about what are we, what are we supposed to be? You know, wh what do we agree, you know, whether you come from the right and we're Republicans, right? If you're a Republican, uh, what do you stand for when it comes to immigration and sovereignty issues? And for, for me, it's, it's not, it is not adequate to simply frame this question about what, our, what immigration policy should look like to simply say, well, I'm against illegal immigration, but I'm for legal immigration. Because that leaves a lot of, of questions still unanswered. Um, obviously, I'm for legal immigration. My parents came here legally um, from the Philippines in 1970, and I've um, never tired of talking about what a blessing and a privilege in the positive sense of the word it is to be an American citizen. So how do we protect and promote and perpetuate the American dream that I believe in, that I enjoyed, um, for future generations, and what does it mean to implement the part of the preamble of the Constitution that says it is the obligation of the federal government to secure the blessing of liberties for ourselves and our posterity? Well, President Trump has tried because he has many thoughtful um, people thinking about these, these issues, um, to have a, 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 a public debate about the types of people that we want to bring into the country. So there's the types of people, where they come from, what skills they bring. But for me, what, what's important about how you frame it is not simply to say, well, I believe in legal immigration, but how much? What are the numbers? What are the limits? Because if you can't decide what those numbers are and if you can't enforce what those numbers are, you end up in the place that we are today. And it's a trajectory from 1965 up until now uh, that has abandoned any sense of control and self-determination. So what would it look like un under a fully uh, Democrat swamp <laughs> in 2021. Well, it would, to me, it would just be a fast forward button because of many of the um, entities that I've identified in the book, whether it's the, the Soros groups that have morphed over the years from Move On to the Answer Coalition to Abolish ICE to, you know, the frighteningly and increasingly violent aspects of Antifa that um, have targeted ICE agents and, and Border Patrol. Um, it's the radical identity politics groups that I've talked about. The National Council of La Raza, um, which is now called Unidos US. Um, uh, these dreamer groups that have metastasized um, from California and across the country that 
have rejected the assimilation imperative. And so a, a fast-forwarding of obviously would be um, terrifying to somebody like me who supports immigration enforcement. But what I saw during the, the Bush years and what you see to a, a lesser extent, but I do see it um, even under the, the age of Trump, is there tends to be a muting uh, and a splintering on the right about where we should be. And I think that your question at the beginning was getting at that, right? Sort of the, the political optics of, well, we're, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to win over people in, in San Francisco, and how do we talk in a way that's not going to frighten them? And, and, um, trigger. The word we right, hear is trigger. Trigger, them, yes. right? Um, but, like, I'm at the human embodiment of a trigger, so I don't really, <laughs> I don't tend to worry about those things. And I think for me, in large part, um, you know, over the years... And I actually had an editor tell me this, a liberal editor at a paper I worked at the Seattle Times, Frank Blethen, <laughs> who, uh, who said, you're a trifecta. I'm like, what am I, like a, a horse? Like a horse? What are you talking about? So like, because I'm a woman and because I'm um, a minority and I'm a conservative. And I guess some people think that that, that gives me license to say things that they think that, that they couldn't say themselves. And my question is, why not say it? Right? YOLO. We only live once, right? Um, and, and I think that, 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 that there's a wing of, of the Republican Party that has been governed too much by fear. And, um, and so th- rather than being forceful advocates for sovereignty, they're always on the defensive. They always, has, always have this defensive crouch because they don't, they don't want to uh, sort of bravely engage. And for me, it's, it's, there's nothing brave about it. It's, it's very easy for me to just say, no, I'm not a racist. I'm not a xenophobe. I'm not anti-immigrant. Uh, and I'm the, my, my favorite two um, smears that have been leveled at, at me since the book came out a month ago are that I'm a white supremacist. <laughs> This is a real thing. You can look it up. There's like thousands of Google hits on it. And that I'm an anti-Semite, even though I'm married to the grandson of Ukrainian Jews. It, it doesn't, I mean, so there's nothing that I could do to insulate myself. So why, why bother fearing that? It, it's ridiculous. And that's the one thing I appreciate, appreciate so much about um, President Trump, um, uh, you know, uh, it, it's a roller coaster every day, but he does not have that sort of uh, chromosomal problem that a lot of people have in the Republican swamp of fearing being called things that he knows he's not. And so, you know, you can look at the, you know, I call it my tr- Star Wars trilogy of my immigration books, <laughs> Invasion, Sold Out, and Open Borders, Inc. And I, I make, you know, uh, very substantive policy arguments in favor of a strict um, enforcement agenda. And all the left can do is, is hurl these epithets um, fecklessly and, and futilely, and, and the, the policy uh, recommendations stand on their own. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now back to our program. So what would I do if I were president? The second part of your question. Well, in 2002, um, at the end of invasion, I had a very simple solution to stave off. It would have staved off so much of the suffering and the chaos that we've had in the ensuing uh, 17 years since I uh, came out with that book. And that, that the one major policy recommendation I had was an immigration moratorium, a freeze, just stop, because... Every aspect of our immigration system is completely overwhelmed. And that's by design. 
I mentioned the 700,000 visa overstayers. Let's talk about another aspect of the immigration system that's often neglected and, of course, that the Open Borders, Inc. forces want to destroy as well, and that's the deportation function. I've had sources, um, you know, long before DHS was DHS and ICE was ICE, um, sources on both the northern and southern borders, when I worked in L.A. at the Daily News and when I worked in Seattle at the Seattle Times, um, who talked about their inability to um, detain and then track down people who had had many bites at the apple of our immigration court system. Like, people have no idea how this thing works, but guess what? The illegal alien lawyers lobby <laughs> knows all about it, and so do their clients. They know how to game the system like nobody's business. And the revolving door, which is enabled by sanctuary policies all across the country, um, allows people to uh, be told that um, they call it an NTA, notice to appear. Well, we don't have the will or the space to detain you, so please just, we'll trust you to show up. <laughs> notice to appear or notice to disappear, <laughs> right? And, um, and so we have upwards of half a million now, and these are probably lowball estimates, right? Half a million deportation fugitives, right? They had their day in court. A, an immigration judge determined that they should not be here. And then we just trust them to show up for, you know, final resolution of their cases. And they never, ever uh, come through. So deportation, the visa system, uh, and yet while, that, while these pipelines for potential uh, violators continue to expand, you still have one million green cards being issued every single year. That's on top of the upwards of 30 million illegal aliens who are in the country, 40% of whom are visa overstayers. And then we have um, programs like the Refugee Resettlement Program, which is importing hundreds of thousands of people from many parts of the world that are hostile to our interests and our values and our laws and traditions. And there I would give President Trump an A-plus uh, and his team on understanding the need to rethink that entire program. Uh, because, and this is where so much of the money aspect of Open Borders, Inc. comes in. People ask me, like, what's the most shocking thing that you discovered when you were writing the book? And, you know, I, I knew enough about the refugee resettlement program to know, for example, that the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops is making bank on it. We have any Catholics in the house? Yeah. Actually, we've gotten a few questions so far from the audience about what you think about the role of the Catholic Church in this <laughs> <laughs> I'm appalled. I'm appalled at our our Pope, who has designated himself the global leader of the anti-Trump resistance movement, who has perverted scripture uh, in defense of uh, sabotaging our sovereignty every single day, and then cloaking their own financial imperatives and their self-preservationist imperatives in compassion, when what they really are doing is inducing a miserable human smuggling racket. They're conspirators in that, and they are helping enrich the drug cartels and the coyotes that I talked about. And chapter one of the book, which is called Sin Fronteras, All Aboard the Caravan Cartel, um, maps out uh, the entire network of Sherpas, and uh, the illegal alien shelters that are run by the Jesuits and the Scalabrinians, um, Jesuit uh, migration services, and an entire uh, network within the interior of the country as well. And not to single out the Catholics, but there are other denominations as, as well that are enriching themselves. Everybody knows about what's happened to the Twin Cities in Minnesota, 
And they're the prime government contractor that receives billions of dollars of taxpayer subsidies and the refugee resettlement racket is the Lutheran Immigrant and Refugee Services. And they're responsible, uh, LEARS is their acronym, uh, for example, bringing Ilan Omar and her family here. How's that working out? Uh, and, um, and the transformation of these communities across the country is happening without the input of those communities. So when people ask, well, what is the ultimate agenda? Well, I quote George Soros, who wrote a book called The Case for Global Governance and has given many speeches all around the world about how he believes that sovereignty, whether it's American sovereignty or the sovereignty of any other Western industrialized nation, uh, is, quote unquote, uh, quote, unquote, an obstacle to global governance. And the idea is that he, he prefers a world where a few very wealthy oligarchs, namely him and his sons, uh, in cahoots with the United Nations and other transnational uh, organizations and this constellation of non-governmental organiz organizations decide for other countries what their countries should look like and who comes into them and how many. And that's how you end up with uh, uh, the Twin Cities or Lewiston, Maine or uh, Nashville, Tennessee. And so what President Trump has done and what I would do if I was, <laughs> were president as well uh, is he's reduced the numbers down to 18,000 a year and people are kicking and, and screaming even about that. Even at that level, America remains the most generous nation in the world when it comes to accepting refugees. Uh, who are subsidized every step of the way. Um, I would bring it down to zero. But um, the other important thing that he's doing is ensuring that there is community input into this. Because what's happening and what's interesting is, and here's where that bended arc of the political spectrum meets. Uh, because for immigration enforcement um, activists and, and journalists like myself who cover these, who see the... Um, the many negative consequences of the refugee resettlement program over the years. There are also Democrat mayors in working class cities um, across New England, for example, who even protested under the Obama administration and said, wait, you know, nobody signed us. We didn't sign ourselves up for um, the overwhelming of our health, education and welfare systems. And uh, it's our obligation as, you know, mayors of these cities to put our own citizens first. So I want to go on a, a brief tangent off of immigration, a couple other issues. The first one is you were a strong and early advocate for Andy No, who is the journalist up in Portland that was viciously attacked by Antifa in late June. First, what do you think about Antifa and its role in the country? Are they connected to what you're talking about? And then why Andy and what do you think of what happened to him? Okay, so first, I have a chapter in the book on what I call the A-team, Antifa, Abolish ICE, and Sanctuary Anarchists, and the ways in which they are, are helping promote the violence that we're seeing in uh, cities like Portland, um, where you have a mayor that has issued stand-down orders to the police to allow Antifa essentially to take over the streets or the abolish ICE movement because uh, Occupy ICE in Portland was successfully able to shut down the ICE facility there for five weeks. And Andy reported on that. Andy was an, an early uh, sentinel in warning the rest of the country and for his you know, incredible journalism and public service he was targeted, continues to be um, someone who has to live with these types of threats daily. He was just doxxed again mm -hmm. last week. You know what doxing is, right? The, the release of private information uh, as a way to get people to stop um, doing uh, the good deeds and activities that they're doing. And, uh, and abolish ICE is really just a morphing of the sort of street thugs and agitators that have been around for the last 20 years. Um, when I lived in the Pacific Northwest, the black block 
mm-hmm. uh, were the ones who burned down downtown in 1999 during the WTO riots. Woohoo! <laughs> Heck of a job. Um, throwing rocks through uh, the, you know, the Nike storefronts and, and such and wearing the black masks and uh, black gloves and the tactical gloves that apparently were just bequeathed <laughs> to uh, Antifa. And um, the double standards in how the Silicon Valley speech police treat Antifa, which um, docks people, harass uh, activists and journalists like Andy No versus the way that they have treated um, ordinary patriots, Trump supporters, immigration enforcement advocates, pro-lifers um, who have been throttled, Prager University's videos, of course, they're in, they're in court. Um, it, it tells you as well that, uh, you know, the people who run Facebook and Google and Instagram have an agenda as well that's in line with the forces of of Open Borders, Inc. As I was putting the manuscript uh, to bed and getting it ready for the printer this summer is when Andy was beaten bloody and the video went viral. And for me, it was just a moment where I felt like I have to do something. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, within a couple of hours, I had texted him. I've, we've been communicating for the last couple of, of years. Um, I just admire his work so much and, um, see a lot of myself when I was starting out in journalism. And, uh, and so I, uh, opened up a GoFundMe. It was the first one I'd ever done. And it was amazing. There were thousands of people from around the world that felt the same way I did and helped raise, um, a hundred, more than a hundred thousand dollars for him. And, in uh, like five days for him to be able to um, sustain himself. And he's still doing therapy, neurotherapy. For those of you who haven't seen the video, he was punched in the head multiple times by these Antifa thugs while the police stood by, right, in the shadow of the courthouse uh, in downtown Portland. Uh, And of course, Harmeet Dillon and you (laughs) have been, you know, so helpful to him. Um, so that he can still, you know, do the journalism that so, so few other real journalists will will do. Um, but it 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 works itself into another theme um, of the book and my book tour, which is that more of us need to get off of the sidelines. Um, and I try to practice what I preach. So in the wake of what happened to Andy at the hands of these Antifa and abolish ice thugs. And also something else that happened this summer as I was finishing the, the manuscript for the book in my adopted home state of Colorado at an ICE facility run by Geo Group, which is now going to be run out of uh, California, an American flag was torn down by Antifa light agitators, and it was replaced with a Mexican flag and a defaced Blue Lives Matter flag. And many of these thugs also then targeted the private home and neighborhood of the warden of the facility. Um, The local cops in Aurora, Colorado, uh, that had showed up to protect that neighborhood, along with um, the warden's neighbors who turned out and stood on the lawn, were spat at. The police were um, taunted and told to go home and swallow bullets. Uh, And... Again, you can trace the transformation of the far-left groups, uh, many of them who were active here, whether it's the Weather Underground, the Black Liberation Army, uh, the fomenting of anti-cop hatred to its sort of current iteration of um, the hatred that's being heaped every single day on ICE agents and Border Patrol. And so there's this vacuum that's been left because, you know, it's often said, we talked about this last night, that conservatives don't do protest. And I say, why the hell not? (laughs) And so um, as I've gone on my book tour, um, I've targeted sanctuary cities. That's why we're here in the Bay Area. Um, And when I've been able to, I've um, convened Stand With Ice rallies 
So 200 people showed up in Aurora when I had my first one on Labor Day. And I picked Labor Day because it's always the excuse of conservatives that, well, we work, we can't do this. <laughs> you are off Labor Day. You show up. <laughs> and then I did another one in Montgomery County, Maryland. And Montgomery County, Maryland sort of is a, is a uh, sort of a, a bookend to our sanctuary nation. And like you can think about Montgomery County, Maryland and San Francisco as being, you know, sort of the these focal points for sanctuary policies because the most extreme sanctuary policies in the nation are in California and Montgomery County, Maryland, where ICE agents are uh, barred from entering courtrooms and jails to interview criminal alien suspects. And the county, this county um, had been home for me for several years when I was in the Beltway, of which I'm a refugee now for 11 years. And um, Montgomery County, Maryland um, was back in the news over the summer because upwards of, I think it's now a dozen, but at the time there were 10 criminal alien rape suspects that had finally been apprehended after going through the revolving door. And the only reason why we knew about it is because law enforcement there, like they are here, I'm sure, were absolutely disgusted and frustrated that they had their hands tied behind their backs and gags on their mouths because sanctuary policies prevented them from cooperating and communicating with federal ICE agents. And uh, the thing about the victims in these cases is their nationality and their, um, their nation of origin and ethnicity was often missing from the stories. And what I inf infer from that is that it was other members of the migrant community or, or other illegal aliens, young girls, as young as 12 and 16, who had been victimized by these uh, criminal alien rape suspects. One of them gang raped um, another uh, home invasion robbery in the city where I bought my first house in Germantown, Maryland. So we had a Stand with ICE rally there uh, right in the government complex, the county seat, where for the most part it was these Soros groups, and I identify one and I talk about its history in Open Borders, Inc., Casa de Maryland, whose first um, chief was the now head of the DNC, Tom Perez. And Casa um, basically has hijacked the county government there, Casa uh, was a big promoter and campaign donor to the county executive there who crafted the radical sanctuary policies. Well, we turned out a 1,000 people. And um, my friends Tom Fitton from Judicial Watch came. Yes, he's fantastic. And, of course, the work he's doing in um, D.C. and across the country is so significant, because if you're going to turn back the tide of a sanctuary nation, you, ha you have to be fighting in court. And he's here in California fighting on a number of fronts, uh, suing over sanctuary policies, as well as protecting electoral integrity um, and guarding against illegal alien voter fraud. Um, um, Larry O'Connor and Sebastian Gorka also came out as well. And many, many people um, from across the county who are just absolutely fed up. So I think boots on the ground and turnout are really important. And that kind of local civic engagement and exercise of, of, you know, of that muscle, um, I think we need to see more of it. I think it's atrophied, and I think people have made too many excuses. And again, it's one of those examples where you can't let fear guard you. So we have 15 minutes left. I kind of want to do like... Oh my gosh, yeah. already? <laughs> yeah. So I kind of want to do a little bit of a lightning round, but the first question uh, is probably going to be the longest answer, so I'll give it first. Uh, let's talk about the state of journalism for a moment. You're a lifelong journalist. You've worked in print journalism. You've been a contributor to Fox News. I have a journalism degree. Part of my job is I interact with journalists all the time. So on one hand, you have Andy No, who Rolling Stone Magazine and BuzzFeed did these feature articles saying that he's not a journalist. He's a you know, conservative provoc provocateur. Mm -hmm. uh, you've got these Project Veritas videos coming out Woo! from CNN. Um, you know, showing that some of their highest level individuals have a bias against the Trump administration. There's, and you've got the newspaper industry on, on declining in distribution. Mm -hmm. 
what is your take on the state of the of state of journalism now? So I started out as, as what I call an ink-stained wretch, <laughs> right? And that's an old term for um, people in the newspaper business. And I, I cut my teeth uh, in L.A. It's what I've always loved doing. That's my bread and butter. I've had a syndicated newspaper column with Creator Syndicate since 1999. I had started at the Daily News in 92. Uh, I worked in um, the Pacific Northwest, as I mentioned, at the Seattle Times in the late 1990s and then moved to the D.C. swamp. <laughs> and I think in large part, what's wrong with journalism is the swamp. It's the people who have grown so out of touch with their readers and who think that their job is to be gatekeepers and narrative shapers, narrative warpers. Um, the problem isn't bias in media. The problem is people denying that they're biased. If they just owned up to it and labeled their papers the way that the tabloids do in Britain, then we can get rid of the pretense of neutrality. Um, I was also one of the original conservative bloggers, and I think that that was a really golden age for conservative new media. The takedown by conservative bloggers, citizen journalists, of the godfather of fake news, Dan Rather. Right? Everybody remembers that, right? And to remember that it was people who were part-time uh, journalists, and they, they, they didn't care what you label them. I mean, that's the other thing. Nobody's, nobody in, who, who is a member of the, um, the credentialed White House Correspondents Association is ever going to call me a journalist. I don't care. You can call me whatever you want. Call me a provocateur. This is journalism, right? Seven books and two media websites and thousands of columns and thousands of blog posts that stand on their own. I don't care. Call it whatever you want. Um, but, you know, here you have these bitterly clinging members of the elite media, and all they ever do is try to keep us out of their club. Fine, I don't want to be in your club. And President Trump set the, uh, the great example of this. I'm not going to go to your White House Correspondents' Dinner. Why would I go there and, you know, grip my teeth, right? So independent media, and you mentioned James O'Keefe, and there's an entire new generation of um, young journalists who were inspired by the late, great Andrew Breitbart, right? Um, um, you look at the, the young generation of people and how they consume news. My kids don't watch me on Fox News or anywhere else, <laughs> right? And so many people have cut the cable. Um, people hunger, I think, for long-form journalism and for, uh, you know, the kind of deep investigative work and undercover work uh, that harkens back to a golden era of investigative journalism. And that's where really my heart lies. I was able to do two seasons of a, an investigative program, um, originally for CRTV that's now running for Newsmax. You know, that's the kind of thing I love to do. And, you know, I'm as somebody who's been on both sides of the camera, I'm just as frustrated as everybody else doing a three-minute cable news segment where when you cut out just all of the filibustering and the, the interruptions gives you 20 seconds to actually say anything. And that's why I ended up writing this book, which is almost 500 pages, my longest of all the books that I've written, because there I was, you know, at the beginning of the year, asked to uh, explain the phenomenon of these illegal alien caravans. I'm like, I, I just started and the segment's over. <laughs> so that kind of, um, you know, the 24-7 the cable cycle, the, the, you know, very repetitive narratives that complied, whether it's on the left or, or the right, uh, leaves a lot of a vacuum to be filled, and it is being filled. So I've got a few different questions that all kind of get to the same thing, so I'm going to paraphrase. Why did you decide that the immigration issue was the clear and present danger that you were going to focus on compared to all the different issues that are going on in the country? That's a really good question. Thank it's, the audience, not me. 
Uh, <laughs> that is not a lightning round question. Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, well, I'll, I'll answer it quickly. So, uh, like I said, I cut my teeth in LA. I was there in the early 1990s. I covered the beginnings of the grassroots movement that led to Proposition 187. And those were sort of the original sovereignty champions that paved the path that led to, you know, this incredible, disruptive um, outcome of President Donald Trump being elected. And uh, many of those people had um, absorbed the slings and arrows of being labeled uh, haters. I saw the Southern Poverty Law Center at work early on. They targeted me in the mid-2000s. Then when we went through the amnesty battle, which, remember, was not just about the left versus the right. This was the grassroots right against the establishment GOP and the Bush-Rove wing of the party. Um, and so I've always covered those issues as a result of being in L.A. And then because of my own personal history, um, an imperative to want to protect the system that uh, brought my parents here and rewarded people who were coming to enhance the American dream rather than sabotage it. So you mentioned LA and you also mentioned San Francisco. Mm -hmm. Two of the most prominent issues in both these cities are homelessness. The bubonic mm -hmm. plague is back in Los Angeles among a lot of other medieval diseases. Mm -hmm. Do you see a lot of similarities between what's happened with the immigration issue and some of these organizations that are benefiting from that? Or is it just bad democratic management? Or what do you think the issue going on there is? Oh, I, I definitely think it's, you know, I, we, we hear this phrase manufactured crisis bandied about. But in, in essence, that's, that's what's happening. If people really wanted to solve homelessness, it would have been solved. But there are many financial interests involved there in not curing the, the problem. But there's another aspect of it, too, which is it, it, it should be an opportunity for Republicans to contrast the priorities, because there you have Nancy Pelosi, you know, making as her priority and every one of these Democratic presidential candidates raising their hands for Medicare for all, while we have American veterans homeless in these Democrat-run cities. So you're pretty close to the headquarters of Twitter, and you founded Twitchy, which is a Twitter creation tool. Yeah. And big tech is in the news all the time now, Facebook constantly. What do you see as the role of big tech and social media, especially moving forward, both in the elections and just in society? Should they be viewed as a utility, or what's your take on what's going on there? These are not neutral platforms. <laughs> And, uh, you know, the, the work that's being done and the brave whistleblowers um, who are all coming forward uh, show the urgency of um, getting rid of the immunity that they've enjoyed. Uh, they are publishers, and they're putting their thumbs on their scale. And their ultimate goal from now until Election Day 2020 is to deny President Trump re-election. Um, they're the partisan operatives uh, who are doing everything that they can to push effective advocates, not just for the Trump administration, but for um, the issues that I care about, from uh, abortion to immigration um, and beyond. And, um, you know, we've, we've had any number one of these hearings where Jack Dorsey himself has committed perjury. And my column this week, actually is about the woman who called him to the carpet, um, Laura Loomer, who's running for Congress. Um, and she had shouted at him at one of these hearings when he lied um, about uh, the bias that clearly exists at Twitter. And uh, we need more people like that who will stand up to those forces rather than take money for them. And I have joked that these uh, Congress critters should wear uniforms like uh, the NASCAR drivers that show who sponsors them. <laughs> then, right? Follow the money, find the truth. So as we say here in the Bay Area, you're behind enemy lines right now. 
in two different groups, what would you recommend or what advice would you give to both just people, people that are here, people that are involved in party politics, conservatives in the Bay Area? What would be your advice to them to living in San Francisco in the greater Bay Area <laughs> and dealing with, you know, the resistance to the resistance? I always joked I, I run around San Francisco and spray paint Wolverines on the side of buildings. Um, but yeah, some of you got that. That was <laughs> and then also, uh, young people, their Generation Z is supposed to be actually skew more conservative. There's a lot of people here in the Bay Area, under 18, under 25, that identify as Trump supporters, identify as Republicans, but they're in San Francisco, they're in the Bay Area. What advice would you give to them get starting and also surviving here? So I've spent a, a large, significant, significant part of my um, professional career and adult uh, adulthood in hostile territory. I don't know why. I just seem to gravitate. <laughs> like Me too. Run towards the <laughs> fire, right? Um, many of you know that I went to college at uh, Oberlin College, which is the UC Berkeley of the Midwest. Um, and I, uh, my husband um, was uh, born and bred in Berkeley. So, um, and yeah, he's he's to the right of me now as my first convert. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and then, I, you know, I mentioned living in L.A. and Seattle and, and Montgomery County, Maryland. And um, over the years, it's become increasingly difficult. I understand it. Um, you know, it's easy to say, wear your mega hat. Um, <laughs> I don't see any. I don't see any. All right. Oh, there we go. Yes. Good for you. I love it. No fear. Uh but, you know, when you have to, to worry about, you know, getting your car keyed if you, if you have a Trump bumper sticker or in the case of, of, you know, prominent conservative speakers. I mean, obviously you see what happened to Andy No, but um, conservative speakers like what happened at the UC Berkeley campus. And uh, even in the mid 2000s, I had to travel with a, a personal bodyguard who was a retired NYPD. You know, Michael Moore and Jane Fonda don't have to do that. <laughs> when they go to liberal college campuses. Um, and so you have to make, I mean, everything's a cost-benefit analysis. And for me, when I was back in D.C. 11, 12 years ago, and, you know, people who disagreed with my politics could not respect simple boundaries, like not yelling at me at IHOP when I was having breakfast with my kids and they're having their happy face pancakes... And you see that now. There's this this abandonment of, of of basic decency. Now, of course, if I if there was a, a liberal on stage, they'd have their own perspective on that. But the point is that our perspective never gets out on that. And you've got uh, liberals on Twitter, going back to Twitter, right, mm. who are able to mock the Covington High School kids, defame them, lie about them. Um, a Hollywood actor who said that he wanted to put all of the Covington kids in a wood chipper, right? All the way up to Kathy Griffin w waving her, you know, bloody head of, of Donald Trump. And then we're always the ones that are accused of inciting violence or championing incivility. So a lot of times, you know, what I just tell people is, you know, tell those people who are yelling and barking at you to look in the mirror <laughs> or just always have your camera phone, you know, with you and, and document it. It's, I think it's the best thing we can do. And I think, you know, um, in, in terms of pushing back against um, narratives and, and, you know, I've always been, been put in a box. I'm always stereotyped. I'm always, I don't know why people say I'm so angry all the time. Have I, right? Well, like, you know, I say that I'm a little brown woman with a big mouth and, and a happy warrior. And um, I think what people fear most is having like a, a you know, longer than three minutes to, to articulate my views and, and my um, agenda. So on that note, we have three minutes left. Yes. Do you have any final comments, thoughts, takeaways that you want to share? Or I can ask you a really tough question. I'm all about tough questions. Go ahead. So what about the dreamers? You have these yeah. kids who were brought here when they were one, two, three years old. They lived their entire lives in America. They've gone through the school system. What would you do with them? So I'd say, yeah, I mean, I, I talked about how uh, the original sin of 1986 was never fulfilling enforcement. And so from 1986 to 2016, when the administrative fiats were 
passed on behalf of, of the dreamers. Amnesty begat amnesty begat amnesty. And America was put last, and American citizens, American college students, American grad students now, right? You saw this. Gavin Newsom has now extended dreamer benefits to include not only illegal alien undergrads, but also grad students as well. And the priority is always Americans last, and now they call them dreamers, but whatever they were for the last 25 years, them first. And so, uh, yeah, I would be blunt and tough about it and say, no, it, it's your turn. It's your turn to wait. It's, it's your turn to bear consequences of, uh, of the failures to enforce our immigration laws for the last 25 plus years. And what people miss when they talk about helping the dreamers and compassion is that the U.S. Chamber of Commerce doesn't care about that. The, why, why do you think the, the, the Koch brothers are now um, sponsoring something called the Libra Initiative to champion in-state in tuition discounts and driver's licenses and all sorts of benefits? It's the work permits. It's about cheap labor. And so for me, this book and the importance of so much of the, of the work I've done with this is to strip away all of the layers of deception and get to what's really motivating Open Borders, Inc. Everybody thank Michelle Malkin for coming and joining us tonight. Thank you so much. Of course, I'd like to thank all of you for showing up and everybody that's going to watch online. A reminder that Michelle's book is also on sale in the back of the room and she'll sign them on stage for you following the program. Please stay seated. If you wish to have your book signed, and we'll give you further instructions. I'm Matt Shoup, and now this Commonwealth Club program is adjourned. <laughs>